What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. We're on a Central Park anti or anti-clockwise walk and talk. I'm not doing the whole perimeter. I'm doing the kind of bike path on the inside. Beautiful day in New York's been busy the past week or two. We had the New York City Marathon on the weekend. It was city was packed. Then on Monday, the U.S. opened up its borders to a lot more people. So seeing a lot more suitcases around and even now in the park, it's quite busy and lots of groups of people out together without masks. So hmm, maybe a sense of normalcy. Normal is boring, but I guess we'll take it for a while, right? Sense of normalcy coming back. Today, I'm going to chat to you about resilience. It's been on my mind today. And then I have 10 to 15 questions from people from Instagram. So thank you for those questions. And I'll try to get us through this in about 45 minutes. Hope you're all doing okay out there. If this is your first time, there are interview episodes that are not just me talking into a microphone and you can find them. I actually just interviewed a guy called Clint Johns, Dr. Clint Johns, who worked at Tower Records uh, 20 odd years ago. And he, his nickname was the Zine Czar. He ordered in his 20s all the zines like graffiti and hip-hop and all kinds of sort of subcultural magazines or zines from around the world and often paid a lot of us overseas a little bit of money up front and uh, he bought my magazine. It was the first time I actually saw him in the flesh. We had a good chat about zines and the psychology of zines because he's now a cognitive uh, psychologist so I'm looking forward to getting that out there but I've been in a nostalgic mood for at least the past hour. Not, not too much to report uh, from a sweathead point of view if you're doing the accelerator with us awesome we're now in week two of seven or eight week program right we've got a lot more in store for 2022 it's going to be a pretty robust year if you're interested in learning or meeting people doing new experiences uh, around the strategy world uh, we've got a beta of the new sweathead website up a few bugs it's pretty complicated it's pretty complex if you are a member of the sweathead learning um, membership a member of the sweathead learning membership you will have or you're very soon to receive a login to that and uh, we've got a couple more weeks of testing before we yeah probably a couple more weeks maybe 10 days of testing before we launch that in public otherwise hmm, don't know just settling in for the holidays and trying to do some good work before the year ends i want to talk about resilience right now it's on my mind because uh there's a little email popped up this morning about doing a kind of talk about resilience and um, you know, my initial reaction when people ask about resilience or grit is like, I don't feel I have a lot of it. <laughs> it's quite funny, right? Uh, maybe it's quite funny. It's funny to me because I see myself turning up to do this or I do keep going at certain things, but I don't have it in a traditional sense. And so part of me was like, uh, you'd be a bit fraudulent to talk about that. And so I took it for a walk early this morning. I was like, what's my actual point of view on this topic? Because why give up and say that it's like you don't have a point of view because you don't necessarily identify with it. I think one of the reasons that I don't, well, two, probably two key reasons that I don't identify with it. One is that as an employee, I did move around a lot every two to three years, which is sometimes even shorter actually, which is not uncommon in our industry, especially if you're burning out or in toxic environments. But, you know, compared to other friends who had more stable careers, many, many of them actually had more stable personalities as well, less neurotic, I didn't seem to be resilient, you know, but that's really resilience in the context of other people's companies. 
because when I then think about it, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've done over the years, whether it's doing a radio show or publishing a magazine. I did my magazine for the most part of 10 years. Whenever I could, I did a weekly radio show unpaid for five years, which was great. Uh, the stuff I'm doing now, you know, nearly 400 podcast episodes. There's still like a resilience and a, a keep goingness to these things, but it doesn't seem like it fits in a lot of other places. Um, or that I haven't necessarily been resilient in the face of uh, crappy work environments, feeling that you've been lied to multiple times in the same job, especially before you took the job, and that what your day-to-day experience of that job after you've taken it is different to the job that you thought you were going to have when you were actively led to believe it was going to be better and different in in the way that you expected it to be. Um, When you're sort of spending a ton of time in meetings and workshops and really hard to get any interesting work out in the world, all that kind of stuff. So that's the stuff that I'm not super resilient at. So I, you know, I'm not a fan of bureaucracy. I'm not a fan of politics. I struggle with institutions, but that doesn't mean that I'm not resilient. So that was going through my head today. I was like, well, what is resilience? Because resilience isn't one of those LinkedIn posts where you're getting up at 5 a.m. to meditate for 10 hours and then going on a marathon every day and then doing some yoga and somehow you've already lived four lives in the space of 30 minutes and then you're writing your book. You know, because that, that brain, that's different to my brain. I don't aspire to have that brain. I don't think I'll ever have that brain. That brain is like super routine and structured. I don't think you can necessarily just switch into that. I think that's probably very much how you were brought up to be. Uh, and also potentially with inherited DNA. So it's weird, there are people around and they're over my shoulder, so it's quite weird talking and other people around like that. Um, and then I happen to be quite close to someone whose motto is never give up NGU. And I apparently am the opposite. We have control structure versus chaos. I'm chaos. <laughs> apparently. Uh, and so I sort of have had a couple of decades of this narrative that I give up at stuff, which doesn't really fit with what I observe of myself. Like I give up the things that I don't feel are real to me and that I don't feel that I have to suffer through. I'm using that word suffer in a light way that I have to put up with just because they happen to exist. Um, and so, for me, you know, resilience is not about being tough. It's, it's not about grit. It's not about getting over things. It's not about being hard. It's not about positivity. I kind of see resilience, at least in a way that it's useful to me in my life, as creating. That in spite of going up and down, in spite of maybe spending time in dark places, in spite of every now and then perhaps burning out, a few months later, a few years later, you get back out there and you create. That to me is kind of what resilience is. Uh, and I know that might be a Western perspective. You might say it's a Western white male perspective, whatever things you want to put in front of it. But it's a perspective I can connect with that makes sense. Because the opposite narrative, that in not putting yourself through systems that you don't feel alive in, that that's being resilient, that resilience is putting up with stuff that is inhumane that's like a whole other thing it's a whole other thing and it's not that I'm not built for it I think we can all adapt but it doesn't feel very natural so there you go there's some thoughts on resilience and I'm just saying that because I know a lot of you are feeling burnt out right now and trying to work out what you want to do in life and you've probably got other people's narratives and stories about you being emotional and maybe some of you are prone to negative emotionality Maybe some of you got a bouncy brain. Maybe some of you have ADHD. I'm saying this stuff not to 
for, for no other reason that I literally talk to some of you about this stuff in groups in 101, right? And that your version of resilience, if it's a useful concept, doesn't have to be someone else's uh, version of resilience. And uh, one of the things, and I'm probably older than most of you listening to this, most, not all, not a competition, by the way, if you're older, but one of the things that I guess you start to have to examine at some point in your life is why other people's definitions of you and your words, other people's narratives about you are things that you've believed for so long. That's a, you've, uh, we've all probably gone through that epiphany where you're like, hang on, that person has maintained this theme about me since forever. So one of mine, when I was a kid, was like, you're, you're shy. And I, get, I used to get scared on merry-go-rounds, apparently. I got scared once. And that's been brought up hundreds of times, and not in a nice way. And it's like, hey, well, why is this story coming up time and time again? And I'm picking a light one, don't worry. Don't worry, I'm picking a light one. Why is this story coming up again? Who does this story serve? It doesn't serve me. Why are we talking about it again? And the thing is, if you pick a word like shy or shyness, if that's even true, and I do kind of see it in other parts of the family and different generations, most of the people who are a little bit shy that I'm familiar with in my family at the very least are also quite, they've got quite vibrant internal lives. So perhaps that shyness has pushed them in. Who knows whether it's nature or nurture. But they're quite expressive just in different ways. And so at some point you have to start answering back to the narratives that other people hold about you so you're shy and that might be a bad thing with like well hang on maybe that's why I sat down and uh, you know wrote a thing today or maybe that's why I did something that was actually constructive and creative which is more than whatever's happening right now there you go little meditation might have made sense probably not finding this experience with a lot of people around quite distracting and unusual Let's get into some of your questions. We've got quite a few. If uh, you respond on Instagram to one of my posts about giving me a prompt or a question, first of all, thank you. I won't get to all of them. If you don't want me to use your name, write Anon, A-N-O-N. And there's a pretty good chance that I won't mention your name. But who knows? Who knows? First one is uh, Nice Brise. No entirely the real name but anyway why is branding different in advertising marketing and a discipline of its own I think I know what this question means it's it's one of those questions we got to pull apart so the question is why is branding different in advertising marketing and a discipline of on its own uh, I mean in, in its most general sense branding is probably uh, a, not different in advertising and marketing because in one kind of categorization, you could argue that branding is a subset of advertising or marketing, and that advertising is a subset of marketing. You could argue that. Uh, if people have sort of jumped from art into design and not really gone through the marketing or business or advertising world, then their categorization will be different, where somehow branding might fit into a category that is largely about design, where design might not even fit into business. Does that make sense? It just depends how you categorize these things. So I don't think branding is different in advertising or marketing. The people in 
those fields might have slightly different points of view, although advertising is one of the P's, so I had to be simple, of the four P's of marketing, even though most marketers don't do four P's anymore, and the P that it is, is connect, the P that it's connected to is promotion. I have a feeling what you might be thinking about is how there has been this explosion, especially on YouTube and Instagram, of these communities and subcultures and community leaders where there seems to be this group of marketers, there seems to be this group of advertising people, there seems to be this group of design people, and now there's this kind of interesting coming together of brand strategy people. Personal experience is that a lot of the people in that brand strategy space on Instagram actually are designers, possibly art directors, definitely designers. And uh, quite close to, I guess, the Christo world where a lot of the talk is about either building a personal brand or how to sell a $10,000 strategy project. So what the, the splintering that you might be seeing there could be more how you're seeing the constellations of these communities on Instagram or online rather than how they've traditionally existed. Because traditionally, uh, branding, advertising and marketing are very close. I hope that, I hope that works. I hope that works. I do think it's been interesting to watch it, the sort of brand strategy world in recent years, because that world is actually quite different to the world that I grew up around, which is more the account planning world. Like I said, the brand strategy world online, the main communication or the main talking points right now seem to be about how designers can sell strategy to increase their perceived value and also the amount of money that they make. It seems to be one of the big focuses of that community right now. Whereas in advertising, the strategist has traditionally been called the account planner. I hope that helps. Uh, Dulce Aguilar asks, what is a neglected but important skill strategists lack today? This is so hard. This is one of those questions where like all the faces of the people that I've spoken to in the past few months flashed through my head. I mean, I've spoken with 20 to 30 strategists today, a couple of interviews, DMs, training session, etc. I'm like, okay, what's a neglected but important skill strategists lack today? I think maybe the word skill is correct, maybe it's not. I think there can be a struggle for a lot of strategists who've not grown up in a part of the marketing or advertising industry that gets this. I think the lateral thinking can be a struggle. And I think that that struggle of being, of, of believing that our work is creative work, I think it has to answer back to at least a decade of propaganda, really, about data, science, programmatic, you know, I don't know, won't the algorithms tell us? That kind of stuff. So the time that I probably spend most, what I spend most time getting people to try to realize is just what lateral thinking is, and lateral thinking is a term propagated by Edward de Bono. Right? And it can feel, ab it's ab it is abstract, it's literally abstract. And I don't think it gets the time of day or the, the, the focus that it needs to because people are like, yeah, but what does the data say? Or what do the data say? Can you prove that? Is that a data-driven insight? Is that a bulletproof idea? All this kind of stuff. 
That's my answer. I don't think there's anything interesting or new there. Uh, ben Imbaru asks, what's the strategy statement or insight that stopped you dead? I think that's a really high benchmark. <laughs> uh, you know, in the advertising world. Okay, strategy statement. So, we'll, yeah, situate this in advertising and strategy. I don't know. You know. There are little campaigns that pop up every now and then where I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And the, the, the funniest thing is the first one that came to mind is, I don't even... I don't know, like it's not crazy, crazy mind-blowing. It was just this cute little thought from Droga5, I don't know, 10 years ago. They were working on Puma and they had this campaign about the after-hours athlete. How, you know, they were trying to work out how to get Puma to fit into people's lives and the after-hours athlete was probably someone who worked a job and then in the evenings they went bowling or played table tennis. They did other stuff, so they were trying to be athletic. Uh, that was like the first one that popped up and like, that's not drop dead <laughs> like wow and I don't know if it was effective but Puma I think has struggled for a long time so do with that what you will you know I think there are also the big big campaigns like Omo's Dirt is Good as a way to try to get people out into or kids playing in dirt which obviously would mean their clothes need more cleaning there's little thoughts like that that I like um, I, f I find when I have to access memory for anything to do <laughs> with underground rap or old advertising, I I'm always nervous and I I've always been nervous that I'll misspeak or I'll misremember something. But they're, they're two really simple ones. Uh, I'm not embarrassed to have mentioned them. Uh, I've heard better, but I would need to sit down and kind of just get my head together on that to actually be more us useful to you. But at the same time, maybe the point is that you don't need drop, drop dead or stop dead. Uh, insights or strategy statements um, because it's, it's going to be in the work in the, in the kind of creative work the campaign work that that sort of that reaction might happen if it even needs to okay and on what are the tangible and intangible skills for the strategist of the future yeah when we're talking about skills tangible intangible hard to know what that means I need to know what you mean by that because then you could also split it between soft skills and hard skills or well, what does it all mean I do see a lot of the strategy work as soft skills work well what does that mean coming up with ideas talking to people collaborating running workshops it's in that kind of Sherpa that, that guidance uh, interaction that energy that a lot of the work happens um, what, what's a hard skill I don't know counting stuff so uh, look, some of the, the splitting out of uh, soft skill, hard skill, tangible or intangible skill, I'm not sure how useful it is, but I do think that the strategist of the future is probably going to be just the same as right now. <laughs> look, they're going to need to be a bit more tech savvy, uh, which will largely happen because they use the technology. I mean, I've been around long enough since the internet and social media has taken off to know that if you're working with people who use the stuff you'll probably get good ideas and if you're working with people who don't use the stuff you'll get the ideas that happened 15 years before and nobody will know and everyone will pretend that's not what's happening and you'll be like oh god really so I think it's just this, it's the same kinds of skills and there's always uh, room for different kinds of strategists as well you know, I'm, I'm a certain kind. I don't know how many kinds there are. I'm a certain kind. There are many other kinds. There's sort of more of that buttoned up management consultant kind who happens to work in advertising. There's someone who might be more data, analytics, econometrics driven. Someone who might be uh, like rigorously intellectual. <laughs> there's, there's a whole bunch of types. I really don't know. Um, but I think 
this, I, well, is this an intangible skill? I, I think the thing that I want to see more of, in addition to the familiarity with and comfort with lateral thinking, is honesty. I just feel that this comes up in a question a little bit later, actually. It kind of connects. Like, you know, you can talk about a problem that a brand needs to solve without that actually being a criticism of the people running the brand. And a lot of your great thinking, your great ideas, they're going to have a rawness, an electricity to them that will not survive the very first piece of business jargon that you write in front of it. So maybe it's, it's honesty, candidness, the ability to be raw, while also being somewhat of a diplomat. Edwin Raher asks, biggest fear? Don't know. I don't know. There's a couple of things that come to mind. That was, the, that was one question I read quickly before I got to the park, and I was like, okay, let's not misspeak about this one. Uh, look, one of them is that the way that my brain works, the parts of it that I don't always find pleasant, I hope my kids don't get that. <laughs> uh, that's definitely a bit of a fear. You know, I don't really think about fears like spiders and things like that too much. But that's, that's definitely a fear, and there's definitely there's another fear, which is mm, maybe who I am and who I want to become, uh, what I need to do to become that. You know, how, how is that going to affect people, other people that I'm close to? Will it, will it, will me trying to become that in a way that? It's not that I'm trying to save myself, really. Although sometimes it can feel like that. But in trying to save myself and trying to protect myself, you know, could that damage other people? I hope that makes sense. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of those like pretty self-indulgent questions or things to be able to think about. But as I get older, you know, most psychologists talk about how your coping mechanisms start to stop as you... Well, if, if you bring an issue to them, they might get you to think about ways you behave now how they might be coping mechanisms from a while ago and suggest that maybe those coping mechanisms don't serve you anymore um, so yeah I'm going to disappear into the slightly abstract to not be too specific about that but I think anyone going through what I'm talking about will know what I'm talking about another anon question what are your thoughts on the creative strategist and other strategist types yeah, look, I talk about the creative strategist quite often because, for me, I was attracted to that title. I thought it sounded cool. I wanted to be seen as someone who could also have ideas. Yet over time, I was like, hang on, strategy work is creative work because creative work is idea work. It's piecing things together in new ways, connecting the dots, as everybody likes to say, finding new connections. So to me, strategy work is that. So it is creative work. Therefore, what do you need the word creative in front of it for? I've gone into this a little bit deeper on, on other episodes. I can't remember which ones. But there are different ways that that title gets used. Uh, one is as a bit of a land grab. Like, I do all these things. And the thing is that well, maybe that's actually two or three people's jobs and the company's only paying one of you to do three jobs. I'm just saying. Keep an eye out for that one. The land grab that is uh, actually giving you more work to do. There's the ego kind of use case, which is what I was alluding to. There's the person trying to identify as someone who's not like nerdy and annoying like those other serious strategy or account planning research types. Uh, 
and then yeah I guess they're kind of the main ones I see it mostly existing in the social platforms and, and the publishers these days but at the same time I know that 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 title by itself is actually quite meaningful for a lot of people who felt that doing a strategy role by itself or just quote unquote just having ideas they, they feel like they're minimized or put into a box that they don't want to be in so I, I get that as well uh, you know these words these labels these titles they just have to work with the people that you're working with so things are clear uh, strategy strategist is kind of vague sounds important most people want to be it <laughs> in some res respects or well, most people would probably like to have it reflected in a job title that's for sure so then the question is well what's what is the purpose of of this title the way that we're using it does it add clarity is it just about making us look more expensive things like that but i'm not really interested in policing the use of the words it's just to point out sometimes the silliness that we all go through all of us that we all go through when we're trying to work out what to call ourselves or to call the teams that we're working on and to admit that it's silly and that that's maybe okay as long as it's clear i take clear and silly over silly and unclear and silly and clear over just straight out unclear uh, I think I lost my eyesight during the pandemic it's quite a weird feeling like I can't see very well anymore I'm looking down I'm like I could see these words a year and a half ago what happened oh my goodness uh, Travis Mascouples asks how do strategists approach biz dev business development well is that an independent strategist? Is it someone who's pitching as part of a company? I'm not too sure. Uh, the people that I know who are pretty good at building their own businesses that are strategy oriented, some of them are just really connected. <laughs> like if you grew up in America, you went to an American college, you were in a fraternity or a sorority, and you just, you know, you're in, in that space, you'd probably just super connected. And probably also because to do so, you came from a pretty good family to begin with and you know you're around so I see I see that kind of person they're just very social always among people and things happen the maybe the flip side of that is the person who instead of their physicality their being their, their body being out in public all the time is someone who publishes a lot of stuff to try to attract clients um, I mean you could look up there's, there's entire communities around lead generation and email slash CRM systems from HubSpot to Clavio who will talk about creating lead magnets and building email databases and all that kind of stuff so that, that that's all out there I think I would need a little bit more of a specific question to give you any anything useful uh, perhaps what I'm saying is it's probably largely personality dependent with a bit of a shift between if you feel more extroverted versus introverted you can have different techniques um, uh, I think the challenge with a lot of the strategy business development is like it's quite it can be quite a long uh, it can be long lead times you know you might know someone for 10 years and then a little thing appears and it might go away so I'm not sure if I've got much else to add to that just coming up to Columbus Circle West 59th Street on the west side it's still pretty busy a little bit cold today orangish leaves no idea why I do this by the way <laughs> if I was going to describe what's around me you think I'd actually use interesting language but I'm like there's a tree there's a horse maybe you can hear a horse doing the clip clops uh, all right next question anon indie versus network where should I be right now 
I don't know where you should be right now. It depends on your attitude towards the type of work you want to do, the type of work culture you want to be in, and money. I think the most, I don't know, the most honest thing that I could say is if I talk to my younger self, I would probably just tell myself to calm down and if you want to be an account planner, go to spend more time being patient in places where account planning has existed for a long time. And I'm not saying that to say that you can't build a strategy or an account planning team out of nothing. I'm not saying anything negative about anyone or anything. I just think that it's hard to get. And uh, my hunch is every now and then those lists about like the top account planners or most award-winning account planners, they come out, they're all in some of the best agencies in the world. So what, what does that mean? So you could say, well, I don't care about advertising. Okay. But traditionally speaking, account planning has been around the advertising industry or has started, grew up in the advertising industry. And a lot of the quote unquote best account planners happen to be around some of the best creative teams. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. And I know there are different shapes to all of this stuff. So I'm not saying it's, uh, I said tend. I'm not using absolute language. But I would encourage myself to just chill a little. And look, the hard thing is, like, if you're a lot younger than me, like, I talk to the people older than you. I talk to your bosses. I talk to them before they get the big job sometimes and then after they leave the big job. A lot of it depends on how careerist you are. I know people who really want to be a CEO, global CEO, who the career really, really matters. And in, in an earnest and sincere way. And that's the way they're going to keep going. They want to get, they're going to want to get to the top of a network, right? And then other people, they feel a bit quirky. They don't know if they really fit into that. Maybe they do it for a couple of years and then they're back into an indie. And other people who just stay indie. I, don't, I really don't know. So you just got to sit down and work out what you're even in the industry for. Work out your attitude towards money and time. And then try to get around it. And you won't know in a lot of these places right now, especially. You won't know until you get in. These questions are hard, yo. Ed Nardian, what is strategy? Are you trolling me? Are you trolling me? What is strategy? Can I say anything that's slightly interesting about this? I mean, my definition is a strategy is an informed opinion about how to win. And, you know, probably the two most challenging parts of that, one is explicit and one isn't. Uh, the explicit thing is it's information and opinion. Information and opinion. And then the unsaid thing is how you see all these debates online which are not really around anymore about who's allowed to say it and you see a lot of tis tisting, tisk, tisking from especially from like well-known marketing academics and marketing sciences people with, with due respect who will sort of ridicule advertising and talk about how strategies got nothing to do with it it's sort of implicit in what they say where they're like basically trying to say that the word strategy belongs in in marketing or business but it doesn't it's a secular word the word strategy belonged before the word marketing belonged or happens didn't it no i made that up totally made that up that's wrong so there you go might or might not be useful oh this one's so interesting i feel this one so this is from anon i feel i am being constantly watched as a planner how do i deal with it Oh my God, I felt that so much in New York. I felt it so much. And there are different kinds of watching. There's 
the watching where they might think you're a bit eccentric maybe they enjoy you maybe they enjoy your brain and they're like what's gonna happen now that's group one group two category two is uh, I don't know why this person's here I don't trust them they're stealing the best part of my or my favorite part of the favorite part of my job my favorite part of the job can't speak I don't want them here I can't wait for them to mess up and then I'm gonna go tell everyone when they're not in the room and then there's probably someone who's in between so it really depends and uh, but I know that feeling especially when you got someone who's more powerful who's older kind of breathing down your neck like when you're doing a workshop if you're in the same room and you're writing stuff up and they're kind of hovering around you it's quite weird you can almost feel their their air their breath on your neck or you sort of you're trying to think slowly you're trying to bring other people into the conversation they're sort of policing it super weird but your question is like how do you deal with it well maybe you just start off by thinking about the different categories of watching that exist I gave you three and then maybe you can start uh, putting people and their watching into categories perhaps you talk to them about it I'm assuming there's a big power differential if this is something that you're asking me anonymously that it's someone who's uh, quote-unquote higher status at least in the traditional senses than you yeah don't know it can keep you on edge and if you're on edge maybe you're not able to kind of finish your thoughts so perhaps what you could do is create situations I don't know if this is a zoom thing or a real-life thing but create situations in which you can get space where you can actually not be watched to do your work but yeah it's it's weird, it's weird. all right uh, next question I got a few more a few more what's your take on meta conversations with clients as in what strategy how ads work that's from uh, Ville Herbery what's my take on it I think it's fine the more you have of them I reckon <laughs> the less good work you're gonna do <laughs> it's hard, like we have to uh, educate each other and clients about what we do and about the research and the science that's coming out about all of this stuff we have to but my hunch is that the more you do that the more it might actually be stubbornness or procrastination or just people wanting to kind of have a conversation sound smart but not actually do anything so the conversations are fine but as long as action accompanies those conversations quite closely you know it could just be a smokescreen for you know the act of diligence but not actually applying the stuff you're discussing or taking the kind of risks that you know creativity and ideas are about uh, okay this is a good this is a good question I, I don't know what example is going to come out of my mouth hypothetically and quickly Alex Judds if you find yourself settling on a slogan in your strategy or in your single-minded proposition let's pretend this is on a creative brief if you find yourself settling on a slogan how do you pull yourself back it's a really good question and by the way I think it's totally fine to write slogans but I just wouldn't include it on a creative brief use whatever writing tools and techniques you need to use but let's say I, I know people kind of collect there's a whole library of uh, slogans using the word find you know find your comfort find your edge find your this find your that I think it's 
allowing yourself to write that stuff and then saying, how do I, honestly, how do I make this not sound like a slogan? What does that mean? Well, you're trying to find the theme in that slogan. A slogan is usually going to be probably around three words, right? One to five words. Let's, let's say that. And you just, you're identifying the theme that's in it. And that'll be through the, the main word that exists. And then you're just going to write it as if you're writing an essay or an assignment. So let's say find your edge is a slogan for a country that has a lot of mountains. Uh, so I don't know what's going to come out or if this will be useful. Find your edge. They want people to come and explore mountains and stand on the edge of mountains up high. Well, if you know that that's the context, pulling back the slogan to something that's less slogan-like shouldn't be too complicated. I'm just going to be silent until you work it out. I'm joking. Uh, what could it be? It could be... Uh, you know, I don't know. Our country has more edges to stand on than anywhere else. That's not great. But mechanically, it's fine. If that's what you want to communicate, that's the sort of product feature that you want to communicate, it's totally fine. But it's not saying find your edge. Uh, oh, and I, I think it's really important because I've had those phases and they're probably close to the phase where I was like, ooh, I wouldn't mind being called a creative strategist. Our job is not to do the work of a copywriter or art director if you're working with one. You don't want to crowd them out. You want to give them things that are sometimes slightly clunky and clumsy, but clear, that they can do even better work with. So if you know that you want to and hopefully they've been involved with this process, by the way. But if you know that you want to create a campaign for this country where people are standing on the edge of mountains because you want to get people up into the mountains because it's a country that has mountains, then you know what you need to say. And a slogan will often bury the meaning that you want them to use. And that all I'll do is rewrite it again anyway to work out what you're actually doing, which means to some degree they're kind of doing the strategy all over. All right, two more. Hari Bhaktkar asks, should brand really protest or take a stand for a cause or a moment? I don't know, don't use the word should. They can do what they want, do what they want, depends. I mean, the, the point of brands and building brands is to get in front of and stay in front of a lot of people with provocative, I'm gonna use provocative, people will disagree with that, with bold thinking. And to use your distinctive assets potentially bringing to life certain use cases how people would use the brand so that you get into people's heads and sit in their memories so that when they need something that your brand sells that they think of you so should a brand really protest or take a stand for a cause or a moment I don't know I don't know depends depends I know there's all that research about how people prefer brands a lot of certain types of people prefer brands that do but also people prefer discounts so I don't know uh, Chelly asks how to keep moving forward and utilize momentum to propel forward on projects <laughs> so you're stuck you're stuck you're swelling good things aren't happening so there's at least two things there one is the sense of a momentum and the second is what actual momentum means so for some of us, actual momentum might mean 
creating like a mega campaign for a brand twice a year or once a year, but th th that's momentum. And if you don't do that, then you don't feel that there's momentum. So you got to work out what that word means. I guess you can hear the music now, right? And then the sense of it, I don't know, I, I think in uh, a way to stay sane is really to focus on what you do as a learning process, a way to improve for you. So that in any interaction that you're in, anything that you're doing, any task that you have to do, any deliverable that you have, if you ask yourself the question before it, what am I trying to learn here? What's something I want to try for the first time? Then in a sense, you're going to build your own, uh, your own personal sense of momentum. Alright, I did say 45 minutes and I think we're done. It's 40, 40, 40, 40, 40. I don't know if I made any sense through that, but hopefully some of you enjoyed the sounds of Central Park while talking about strategy. And hopefully you can actually hear me as I wrap this up. I hope you're all doing okay out there. Find us on the internet at www.sweathead.com. I'm at Mark Pollard on Instagram and Twitter. We also have at Sweathead where we've started to be active. Um, I hope you run into the end of the year, into the end of the year is okay. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead.